And we turn now to First uh, Samuel chapter two, the first few verses there, uh, commonly referred to as Hannah's song, although it's truly a prayer. First Samuel chapter two and the uh, first 11 verses. And Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you, There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who are hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's and on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness for not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Then Elkanah went home to Ramah, and the boy was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli, the priest. Thus far, God's word to us this day. The great uh, designer and architect, Frank Lloyd Wright, once said this, Early in life, I had to choose between honest arrogance or hypocritical humility. I had to choose between honest arrogance and hypocritical humility. I chose honest arrogance, and I have seen no occasion to change. Um, uh, What do you think of that sentiment? Uh, Are those the two choices? Are those the only two options for us? Honest arrogance or hypocritical humility? Is there perhaps not a a third way, which would be honest humility? Uh, Well, there is, but it's hard to come by. In fact, it's, it's not natural at all. It's supernatural, something that only comes from a change of heart wrought by God's Holy Spirit. But it also takes work on our part as well, and I think Hannah can help us to get there. Here is this prayer of hers, and it is a poetic expression of praise that bursts from the the depths of her heart from her soul in response to God's kindness in giving her what she prayed for it namely a son she says her heart exalts in the Lord could a mother respond in any other way to such a gift but more than just giving her a gift Hannah says God's given her salvation did you see that in verse one because I rejoice in your salvation Uh, now that she has Samuel her enemy Namely, Penina, Elkanah's other wife, 
She can, she's silenced. Uh, God has delivered Hannah from the taunts and derision of her rival. And this act on God's part has really put things into perspective for Hannah. And it can do the same for you and me if we're willing to listen in and, and to heed what she has to say. Her words direct us to a true understanding of God and also to a true understanding of ourselves, which John Calvin famously said in the opening of his uh, great work, The Institutes of the Christian Religion. He said that's the, the beginning of true wisdom, a knowledge of God and a knowledge of ourselves. And we can get that from this prayer. She shows us that in ourselves, you and I, we're nothing. In fact, God is everything. But then she also says that this high and holy God delights to lift up the humble and put them right next to himself. It's a song, really, about what God does in the gospel. So let's consider it this morning. Notice first how it begins with Hannah extolling God's holiness. She extols God's holiness. That's the first thing we see. Verse 2 is primary, although the theme runs throughout the rest of the prayer. She says, there is none holy like the Lord. There is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. So she's asserting that God is incomparable. The incomparableness of God. In theology, sometimes it's referred to as the solitariness of God or the supremacy of God, or the excellencies of God, or the majesty of God. It's the idea, as Han repeats three times in a row, there is none like you, there is none like you, there is none like you. And she highlights three things in particular. First, she says, there's none holy like the Lord. Holiness is something that you and I experience to varying degrees. We may be more or less holy on any given day, but God is incomparably holy. He is holiness itself. He is holy, 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 entirely set apart from the rest of the world. And because of that, Hannah says the second thing. Not only is there none holy like the Lord, there's none besides the Lord. In other words, there is no other God to turn to. It's an echo of Israel's declaration of faith, which was captured by Moses after the Exodus in his song in Exodus 15. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? Who is like you? There's none besides the Lord. And then Hannah helps us draw out the practical implications of these truths. Because God is different than us and because there is none else like him, no possible rivals to his divinity, then the third thing she says is there is no other help besides him no other help worth turning to there is no rock like our god rock evokes all this wonderful imagery of of the uh stability uh, the protection the strength that god affords but but only god affords it and so the question is do you have that help today do you know this rock do you know what it's like to build your life on the rock the rock of ages well it starts by acknowledging the utter supremacy of God. There's none like him, that there are none besides him. God doesn't share the first place podium with anybody else. In fact, there's nobody even on second or third place. He's in a league of his own. Maybe you know the words of Isaiah 40, verse 28, where the Lord asks this rhetorical question that gets at his excellencies. Have you not known? Have you not heard? 
The Lord is the everlasting God. Yahweh is the everlasting God. In other words, there isn't another everlasting God. Yahweh is the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary, and his understanding is unsearchable. Uh, J.I. Packer has the, the famous book, Knowing God, and he makes this comment about that passage from Isaiah. He says, this question rebukes our slowness to believe in God's majesty. God would shame us out of our unbelief. Have you not known? Are you not aware of this? You haven't heard yet? What's the trouble? God asks. Have you been imagining that I, the creator, have grown old and tired? Has nobody ever told you the truth about me? Packer says the rebuke is well-deserved by many of us. How slow we are to believe in God as God, sovereign, all-seeing, almighty. How little we make of the majesty of our Lord and Savior Christ. The need for us is to wait upon the Lord in meditations of his majesty until we find our strength renewed through the writing of these things on our hearts. That God is one, that God is alone, that God is unlike and incomparable in every way to anybody else or anything else. Hannah got this, and I want you to know that when you get this too, when you get that God is incomparable, then you get his incomparable help as well. You get the rock. In Deuteronomy 32, Moses says that the enemies of God's people have zero chance against them as they come in to take the promised land, and then he gives the reason why they have no chance. And here's what he says. Because their rock is not as our rock. Our enemies are all by themselves. Isn't that an amazing thing? Their rock is not like our rock. So there's a profound difference between those who acknowledge God and those who think he can be discredited or discarded. And this is, a, a, uh, this is the lesson that Hannah points out in the remainder of her prayer. The difference between those who acknowledge God's holiness and and those who don't. So she then now exposes man's haughtiness. And we'll see then finally she exhorts us to humbleness. So in verse 3, Hannah calls out the arrogant speech of those who think they're better than God. Here's where she begins to expose man's haughtiness. She says they talk proudly. We might say they're all talk, right? But they uh, shouldn't be speaking like this because of the simple reason that they're not going to get away with it. Right? Not let, uh, let not arrogance come from your mouth. Why? For the Lord's a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. She says, God knows what you're doing, and you're not going to get away with it. By him actions are weighed. He's the judge. He's the ultimate judge. And the essence of pride is thinking that there are no consequences for our actions, that we are above the law. But when has that ever proved itself to be true? That, that, that there are no consequences for our actions. When, I mean, we see that play out again and again uh, in all sorts of areas or spheres of life. People who, who think they're all that and they can get away with anything. We have you know, stories of Richard Nixon or Bernie Madoff or the Enron execs or Lance Armstrong. People who are on the top of their field begin to think that nobody can touch them. When suddenly then they see the, ro- the, the rugs have been pulled out from under their feet and their entire lives are uh, free-falling into chaos. We do it with our sin, though, every day, right? When we sin, what we're saying is, I can play with fire and not get burned, right? I, I, can, 
I can indulge in this behavior or in this action, and there will be no consequences. And Hannah says, the Lord's a God of knowledge. He knows what you're doing, and he's going to weigh your actions. Proverbs teaches us that pride is what goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. And so Hannah is calling out the haughtiness of men and saying it leads to destruction. No one's above the law of God. And so in verses 4 through 7, it appears that Hannah is giving examples of the manner in which God can execute that judgment in life. Uh, it doesn't always happen in life. It, it might happen a, a, in the next world, in the final judgment. But sometimes he does these terrible, terrifying, and wonderful reversals a, as part of his judgment. So look at these uh, little couplets we have in verse 4 and following. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble put on strength. Those who are full have now hired themselves out for bread, but those who are hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, a meaningful thing coming from Hannah, who was barren for many years. And, and the idea of bearing seven is this idea of fullness. But she who has many children is now forlorn. And then it's all kind of wrapped up for us in verses six and seven. The Lord is the one who kills or brings to life. He can bring down a shale or raise up. The Lord makes poor or rich. He brings low and he exalts. And so our arrogance, our pride, our, our, our hubris stems from you know, a condition that we have or a status or a possession that we have in life that we think makes us better than other people, right? Whether it's our money or our intellect or our charm, our looks, our home, our marriage, whatever it is. But Hannah gives this expansive list to prove that there isn't anything that we have, there, there isn't a single thing that we have in life that God hasn't given to us and that he can't then just take away and give to somebody else. So why are we proud? Why are we arrogant? Paul does something similar in 1 Corinthians 4, 7. He says, what do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it. So Hannah says, military strength, abundance of food, fertility, wealth, status, it can all come and go in an instant. And so isn't it foolish for us to be proud? Isn't it, in fact, the epitome of ignorance to act as though we're better than others and, in fact, that we don't need God and so then in this, we see there's this implicit exhortation or call for us to be humble. That's the final thing that I want us to consider today, an exhortation to humility. What Hannah is teaching us is if God loves to work through surprising reversals, it does mean that the exalted will be brought low, but also that those who are humble will be lifted high. And look at verse 8. Here's where it really is drawn out, I think, the clearest. Verse 8. It says, He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and to inherit a seat of honor. You see what Hannah is saying? She's saying, God can take us from the dust which is a, a term for our condition of frail humanity. And she can make us something, 
or and God can make us something glorious and indestructible. Or he can take us from the ash heap, which is a reference for mourning, for for grief, a place of suffering, and he can bring us to a place of abundance, making us feast like kings. That's what God can do, and in point of fact, that is what God does do, what he will do for those who are trusting in him, those who fear him. This is exactly what he promises us in the gospel, that we will go from being creatures of dust to putting on the indestructible, that we will uh, be brought into the new heavens and the new earth where there is no ash heap, where, where all pain and suffering will be done away with, where there will be no more weeping, where our tears will be wiped away, and he will make us kings and priests unto God, Revelation 1.6. That's what the Lord does for the humble. And so the, the question that you need to ask yourself and have an answer for today is, is that me? Is this promise for me? How can I be humble in this way? I mean, it's a hard virtue to cultivate. But by the Spirit's power, it's possible. So if your question is, how can I be humble? Take Hannah as your example. She is one who threw herself on the Lord's mercies, recognizing herself as nothing more than a servant. We saw that in her initial prayer in chapter 1. She pleads with the Lord to be merciful and grant her a son. What is that if not humility? And what is she then if not exalted by being given these wonderful things? So how can we have this kind of humility? How can we cultivate it? Let me leave you with these three things, these three exhortations to humility that we can glean from her prayer to help you on that road towards honest humility. First, notice this. Hannah would say you need to adore God's holiness. Right, that's how this all opens up, right? Her heart exalts in the Lord such that she has to voice her praise and thanksgiving. And when you will do that, when you do that, you will find that you're looking for words to use to describe the greatness and the majesty and the goodness of God. And the more often we keep God's praise central in our lives, the less we'll be thinking about ourselves. It was C.S. Lewis who famously said, true humility is not thinking less of ourselves, but thinking of ourselves less. Well, then, if you're not supposed to be thinking about yourself, you should be thinking of God. Right? Thinking about God is the best way to think about ourselves less. It's especially appropriate to do that when God answers our prayers and brings about a mighty deliverance, which is the occasion for Hannah's prayer. How often... Do we pray day in and day out for God to give us some, some mercy, some blessing, a, a particular need we have? We pray day in and day out, and then as the moment it comes, we forget to praise him, to thank him. Or we thank him one time, which pales in comparison to the hundreds of times we asked for the mercy. And that's arrogance. Because it tacitly assumes that my needs are worth my breath more than God's praises. So do you want humility? You'll adore God. You'll praise him. You'll keep praising him. You'll keep putting him first and foremost because there's none else like him. 
Hannah says, adore God's holiness. Second, she would say, acknowledge God's judgment. Numerous times in this prayer, Hannah gives voice to the terrifying reality of where pride leads, and that is destruction, damnation. So we should meditate on the sobering end that will be revealed to all who were proud and haughty in this life. Look at verses 9 and 10. The wicked shall be cut off in darkness. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Uh, The New Testament confirms this warning at least twice over when it says God opposes the proud. He's against them. He's not for them. But he gives grace to the humble. So if we acknowledge God's judgment, we'll be kept humble because we'll realize it is coming. We're not going to get away from it, right? Uh, There is a certainty in Hannah's prayer and elsewhere in Scripture for coming judgment. There's no outsmarting God or his judgment on the wicked. Impending judgment, though, also humbles us because we know that apart from Christ, it's what we would all deserve. Uh, This is what I think Frank Lloyd Wright was missing, a sense of his sin and a need of Christ's salvation, because when you know that, that hell is what is ahead of, of the proud and the arrogant, and when you know that that's exactly what you deserve, but instead you've been given heaven, well, then you won't be hypocritically humble, but you'll be honestly humble. You will truly be able to say, I, I am nothing, and I have nothing, but God is everything. Jesus has given me everything. You'll be able to say, I need to decrease. He must increase. And you'll mean it. When the gospel comes home, you'll mean it. So you acknowledge God's judgment. But then finally, Hannah would say, you need to affirm God's power. Affirm God's power. Right? An inducement to humility is the fact that God will change those who are humble They're poor and low condition and will exalt them, whether in this life or the next, certainly ultimately the next. But if you don't believe he can do that, then what reason do you have to be humble? You need to affirm that God can do this. If we think he can't, we'll see no point of cultivating a humble heart. Hannah inserts a wonderful little proof of the power of God. I wonder if you caught it. It's in verse 8. Look there again. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. She brings in kind of, it seems like out of nowhere, the imagery of creation. And do you see what she's doing? She's she's likening the, the, the world to resting on these great columns or these great pillars, whether That's how the ancients thought the globe actually rested in space, or she's just being creative, doesn't really matter. But her point is clear enough. God is the one who did this. God is the one who set the whole world in motion, and do you think he can't sit you you in a seat of honor? You think that the God of the universe isn't able to do this? He has power to do it. He can seat you with princes. Believe him. We have a Another demonstration of such power that Hannah did not have, and that's, of course, the exaltation of Christ. Hannah didn't know this, but I do wonder if maybe the Holy Spirit hinted at it uh, through her. Verse 10, if you look there, prophesies that the Lord will give strength to his king 
and exalt the horn of his anointed. Well, there's been no king in Israel. In fact, there hasn't been any discussion of having kings yet in Israel. Or that there's been no indication that the kingship will soon begin. And yet here she's talking about how God will give strength to his king. Well, some scholars say this is proof that, that you can't believe your Bible. This is proof that Hannah didn't say this prayer. Or it's proof that somebody later on, after the kingship began, added verse 10 to her prayer. Kind of tagged it on to, at the very end. Well, I think it's actually far more logical to say that since we believe the Holy Spirit inspired this amazing prayer, that he could have very easily enabled Hannah to say something beyond what she could see. And what she says is this, the God who will raise the humble is the God who will raise up a king for Israel. The God who will raise up the humble is the God who will raise up a king for Israel. And so what does that mean for you and me? Something that we know that Hannah didn't know. God did raise up a king. Ergo, he can raise up me. He can raise up the humble. The raising up of an anointed king is proof that God can raise you and me. So, does God raise up a king? Indeed, he does. And from the least likely of places, right, that forgotten baby brother in a family of impressive young men, God raises up that know-nothing shepherd boy to become the mighty king of Israel, David. Right? There's the humble lifted high. But what about great David's greater son? Right? The first real king of Israel was raised up from the grazing fields, but the last real king of Israel was raised up from death itself, from the grave. Jesus Christ was taken from that dust that Hannah spoke of, the ash heap, the dark of the grave, and lifted up to the heights of heaven. And if you are willing to humble yourself, to acknowledge your smallness, to look to your Savior and say, I need you. If you're willing to humble yourself, the Bible says that trajectory, death to life to glory, that trajectory, humility to exaltation, that trajectory is yours too. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. We ask that you would write its eternal truths upon our hearts. Make us to know and to love you and for all that you have done for us, would we be a humble people. We pray it for Christ's sake. Amen.